Keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, as we will be looking at these verses this morning. As you know, two weeks ago we began Mark, and the first week we looked at the preparation of the Son of God, God the Father sending His Son into the world, anointed by the Holy Spirit in His baptism for the task that lay ahead of Him. And then last week we looked at Jesus' kingdom message in verses 14 and 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And also his, his first call to his, his four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He calls them to follow him. He calls them to follow him and that he would make them fishers of men. And it's at this point now that the narrative turns where Jesus enters into Capernaum and begins his ministry amongst the people. And Before we look there, let me first pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your spirit you would accomplish the purpose of your word this morning. Move in our hearts and in our minds to convict, to strengthen, to encourage, to bring repentance, and to bring life. Help us to behold Christ in the wonder that he is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are moments in life where we're reminded that there are powers at work that are so superior to us, it can often leave us trembling and even fearful. There's moments in life where we're reminded with just how needy And helpless we are as humans. We are but dust, and to dust we shall return. And here in this passage, we are in one sense reminded of these powers that are greatly superior to us. But we're also reminded of our helplessness. Our helplessness. Now this passage, verses 21 through 34, is is quite a large section. So I'm not going to cover every detail in these verses, but what I want to draw our attention to are, are the main ideas in this passage. And the, the first thing that I want us to see here in this passage is what I already alluded to is that we are a helpless, needy humanity. There are three instances in these verses that reveal this, and I'm, I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to go from the end to the beginning. The first that displays this is, is verse 32 through to verse 33. There's this crowd that is coming to to the door where Jesus is looking for healing. As we read, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons." The whole city comes gathered at his door with sicknesses and and demons and and Jesus is there to cast them out and to heal them of their sicknesses. This is a needy, helpless people. We also see it in Peter's mother-in-law who's ill with a fever in verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her And she began to serve them. You know, we often forget this, but 
because we're so used to it. But fevers are not normal. Fevers are a result of the fall of creation. We weren't meant to experience sickness like this, from great sickness to the small sicknesses we experience. It's become so normal to us because it's really all we know. But this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And the third example of our helplessness, of course, is this demon-possessed man. And I would argue that this demon-possessed man is really our helplessness being displayed in him. We are, in one sense or another, like this man. We are helpless. We are needy. We cannot deliver ourselves. All of these occurrences demonstrate to us the helplessness, the brokenness of our humanity. We're overcome by the powers of sickness and we're enslaved by the powers of Satan. And really, the first step to becoming a follower of Jesus is acknowledging this helplessness and this neediness that we have. The first step in becoming to Jesus is not trying to clean yourself up. It's it's not trying to live a more religious, devoted life. The first step in following Jesus is actually acknowledging that you are helpless and you are utterly needy before God. Now I realize if, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might have a possible objection to this. You might be thinking, well, this was back then. The people didn't live... Those people in Jesus' day didn't live in the age of progress that we live in today. They didn't have the medical advancements that we have today. They, They didn't have the technological advancements like we have today. But if we're honest and aware, we're not so different from the people of Jesus' day. Sure, we have incredible technological advancements and even medical advancements, but these are nothing more than what David Wells calls the illusion of progress. We've made incredible medical discoveries, yet the great majority of us will die due to some illness or disease that we haven't been able to cure. You see, our hospitals, in in one sense, they, they demonstrate the great progress we've made yet they also demonstrate just how little progress we've made in solving the many problems we face as humans. You know, maybe with our progress, we've added 20 years to the average lifespan. I know there's statistics for that. Yet in some ways, all that has done has just created more problems for us. 20 years of longer life often leads to simply experiencing more illnesses and diseases that one wouldn't have experienced if they didn't have those extra 20 years. I think of my grandfather who, when he was 80 years old, he he had a pacemaker for his heart. We were thankful that he had that pacemaker put into his body in order for him to live. But little did we know that six years later, he would begin the long process of dying from Alzheimer's. For about seven years, my grandfather was never the same man. You see, all we've really done is is actually just slow down the process of our decay. 
we haven't actually solved the problem of our decay. We live in a culture right now that um, I would say is very obsessed with healthy eating. And, and I think it's a good thing, though I don't always follow it, as my wife tells me. Um, you know, but you have the, the healthy vegan, let's say, who's devoted to eating, a, eating well and having a healthy life. And then you have the, the Big Mac consumer. Okay, I'm the Big Mac consumer. And Stefan, you, you can be the healthy vegan. Now, Stefan, by being that healthy vegan, he will probably live a more um, healthy life overall. He'll probably feel better physically. He'll probably have more energy in his day. He'll, he'll probably experience many benefits. And he, he might even outlive me, maybe, let's say, five years. But in the end, the Big Mac consumer and the healthy vegan will face the same reality. Sickness and death. You see, we're confronted in this passage and in our experience with the reality of our helplessness and our mortality. Though doctors and medicine can help to a certain degree, they can never actually solve the problem because the problem is deeper than mere illness. Sickness and disease are merely the symptom of the main problem. The main problem is that we live in a sin-soaked, broken, fallen world, and we too are sin-soaked, fallen creatures. And because of this, we experience brokenness, chaos, sickness, and death. The physical ailments that we experience are visible reminders of the spiritual ailment we all have. We are sinful creatures in need of physical and spiritual healing, but too often we're not willing to admit it. Too often we have a wrong view of ourselves. You know those things, the, the house of mirrors? You can go into these, I don't, know what, I don't know what they're called, but house of mirrors, and you go in and there's all these different mirrors, and, and often the mirrors distort who you are. In one mirror, you are overweight. In another mirror, you're extremely thin. Or another mirror, you're extremely tall and short. In one mirror, you're beautiful. In the other mirror, you're ugly. I think that's how we often view ourselves in our sinful state. Each mirror, in a sense, distorts our image. We have a distorted view of ourselves. Not so much our physical image, but our spiritual reality. We have a skewed vision of ourselves before God. We think we are far better off than we actually are. And the first step in healing, as this passage tells us, the first step in true restoration is to place ourselves at Jesus' door as these people went to the door where Christ was to find healing. But to place ourselves at the door, we first have to acknowledge our helplessness. It's to acknowledge that there's nowhere to turn but to the one who has supreme power and authority over sin, sickness, and even demons. See, we're really given two options when it comes to dealing 
with our neediness and our helplessness. We can either look to humanity for the ultimate cure, or we can look to Christ who is the ultimate cure. We're a helpless humanity in need of a Savior, in need of a healer. And Jesus coming and and healing and and casting out demons and, and forgiving people of their sins is his demonstration that he's the one we truly need. The coming of his kingdom, the coming of the king is his very display that one day he will eradicate all these things. But the question that's before each of us is this, will we come to his door? Will we come to his door? So we discover in this passage that we're a helpless humanity. Secondly, we see that there is a demonic reality. A demonic reality. While Jesus is teaching, teaching, suddenly a a man with an unclean spirit cries out in hostility and terror towards Jesus. And we're going to look at the details soon, but but all I want to do with this point is to say that demon possession is is real and legitimate. The demonic world is real. There's a spiritual realm at work in our world. There are two really worldviews in our society. There's more than that, but for simplicity, there's there's two worldviews in our society. One that says that there's a world that we cannot see. A spiritual world that is present and at work in the material world. And the other says that all that there is, is what we can touch and see. In other words, there's only a material world. And you can't reconcile these two ways of thinking. You either embrace the one or the other. And even though as Christians in North America, we we embrace the former, that is, we, we believe there is a spiritual world, I would argue that we are still deeply influenced by the naturalistic, modernistic thinking of our age. We're probably more prone to explain certain situations by purely scientific means and chemical imbalances. This madman in this story, if he were living today, we'd we'd probably say he had a personality disorder. And though that may be true, we'd probably dismiss any notion that what might be partly causing such behavior is due to deeper spiritual realities at work. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that every disorder has a spiritual cause. Sometimes it is just mere chemical imbalances. But all I'm saying is this that there's probably more spiritual stuff going on at times than we often realize and are willing to accept. See, I think as Christians, we have two temptations. One is to see everything as demonic. The other is to deny any kind of demonic realities at work in any given situation. But here in this passage, we're confronted with the reality of demonic powers. And as we see in this passage, this man was taken control of by a demon. He controlled his vocal cords. He convulsed him physically. 
Now, not everyone in this world is demonically possessed like we see here in this passage. But this moment, this story, this little picture of this man is in one sense, in one sense demonstrates the reality for all of fallen humanity. No, not every human being has a demon. But God does make clear that all of fallen humanity is under the power of Satan. As 1 John 5, 19 says, And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, in in Jesus delivering this man from this demon, we're getting a mini picture of Jesus' cosmic deliverance where he will conquer Satan and deliver his people from the tyranny of Satan. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you don't follow Jesus, you might think that this is utterly absurd. But I want to say something to you. You live life thinking that everything you do is based upon your own autonomous will And freedom. But that's not true. The Bible tells us that we're not only enslaved to our sins, but that we're also under the reign and tyranny of Satan. And if you need proof of this, just look at the chaos in our world. And Jesus, he has come in order to deliver us from the oppressive tyranny of sin and Satan. But the question again for each of us is this, will we come to his door? Will we come to his door as these people came to his door looking for deliverance? So we've seen that we're a helpless humanity. There's a real demonic present reality in our world at work today. Thirdly, we see that Christ has supreme authority. And we see this displayed in two forms in this passage. One in his teaching, and secondly, in his authority over the the demonic. So first, his teaching. In verse 21, he and his disciples entered into Capernaum, a town in the region of Galilee. And he, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he began teaching the people. Now, we're not told what he taught Most likely it was connected to verses 14 and 15. The the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But here, the focus isn't on the content of his teaching, but the authority of his teaching. As we read in verse 22, And they, that is the crowd, were astonished at his teaching. That word astonished carries with it the idea of panic or shock. There was an element of fear and trembling the people were experiencing in light of Jesus' teaching. And the rest of verse 22 tells us why. For, or because, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were, were known for just quoting other scribes throughout their teachings. There was no really, this is what the word of God says, or, or thus says the Lord. And Jesus shows up on the scene. He hasn't been trained by a scribe. He doesn't quote any scribes. 
Most likely, he probably opened the Old Testament and he began to proclaim what it said and how it related to him. In one sense, you could say Jesus spoke with a prophetic, authoritative voice. Yet, his prophetic, authoritative voice was still distinct from even the voices of the prophets in the Old Testament. Even distinct from the prophet John the Baptist. See, the prophets who spoke, they spoke with authority. They spoke with the authority of God. But when they would speak, they would always begin by saying, thus says the Lord. In other words, they spoke on behalf of God. But when Jesus teaches, he never says, thus says the Lord. You read the Gospels. It's never there. Rather, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He speaks from his own authority. Why? Because he is Yahweh in the flesh. He doesn't just speak on behalf of God. He speaks as God. And the people, remember, they still don't know who Jesus is at this moment. And they are astonished. They are disturbed by the authority that this man teaches with. They're hearing something they've never heard before. They're hearing an authority they've never heard before. And it causes them to be amazed, even fearful. You see, the presence and authority of Jesus disturbs the hearts of men. Christ teaches not like the scribes, but one who has authority. And in his authority, he calls sinners like you and me to follow him, just as he called Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. He's a disturber of souls. He disrupts our lives. He, his words penetrate the hearts of men in such a way that it causes them to cry out, Have mercy on me, a sinner. See, Christ's supreme authority is displayed in his teaching, but we also see it's displayed in his power to cast out demons. See, the real test of Jesus' authority will be whether or not his words can change a human life. And we're told in verse 23 that that as Jesus was teaching, a, a man with an unclean spirit, that is a demon, he cries out, There's a disturbance taking place in the synagogue. This demon is disturbed by another's presence. He feels threatened, for he knows that there's a superior power and authority present in the synagogue, and he hates this power and authority. Lovers of darkness hate the light, for fear they'll be exposed. The impure hates the pure. And in light of Jesus' presence and teaching, this demon cries out, and really he he seeks to attack. He goes on the offensive against Jesus. Here we have a showdown between good and evil, between the clean and unclean, between the holy and unholy, between light and darkness. And we know from the story who will prevail. But imagine being present. You don't know who Jesus is yet. All you know is he's one who teaches with authority. But he's about to take on a dark power, a force. And if you're in the crowd, you're probably wondering, what is he doing? 
What is about to happen? This man is about to confront this demonic power. Who is going to prevail? Now, in light of the demon, the demon's terror, he cries out in verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? But the demon, in, in one sense, he's not really asking a question, but he's more making a statement. It, it's equivalent to, you have no business with us. What have you to do with us, Jesus? Meaning, he wants him gone. He's threatened by him, and so he goes on the offense against Christ. Have you come to destroy us, as he continues to say? Really, you've come to destroy us. There's defiance and there's terror in this statement. This demonic force hates Jesus. And it's, a, it's at this moment where the demonic, in a frantic attempt, seeks to gain power over Jesus in the statement he next, says next. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This isn't mere acknowledgement on the part of the demon. He's not merely saying, I know who you are. This is an attempt to gain control over Jesus. In the ancient world, people would often display power and mastery over someone based upon their knowledge of them. And really, it's not just an ancient thing. You think today, for example, you, you take a gang leader and he has someone working for him. And he's given him a task. And, and one of the things he does to make sure that that person gets the job done is he shows him the power he has over him. What does he say? I know who you are, I know where you live, I know who your wife is, I know where your kids are. What's he doing? He's gaining control over this individual. And that's kind of what the demon's trying to do here. I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. And it's in this moment that we see the irrationale of evil. The complete irrationale of evil. This demon truly does know who Jesus is. He knows that he's the Holy One of God, the anointed Son of God. He knows that he's God in the flesh, and yet he frivolously attempts to gain control over him. But this is what evil does. Evil is irrational in its essence. You've probably had this experience walking down the street, and, and there's this dude with a great Dane walking, and and then you see this other dude walking with a chihuahua. Now, just so you know, men, you should never walk with a chihuahua. That's embarrassing. But what happens when the chihuahua sees this great name? He freaks out. Not because he's scared, because he actually thinks... He can defeat the Great Dane. He wants to attack the Great Dane. In his insecurity with the size of who he is, he wants to prove himself over the Great Dane. He's completely irrational. The Chihuahua has lost his mind. That's what evil's like. It's completely irrational. This demonic power has lost its mind. He has become, he thinks that as a house cat, he can take on the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's lost his mind. Now in this demon's attempt to control Jesus, Jesus responds with supreme authority and power. He responds like a lion. 
as we read in verse 25 and 26. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, literally, be muzzled. Be muzzled and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now you you see the, the powerful contrast here. This demon speaks, attempting to control Christ with his words, and he fails miserably. There's no authority in his words. Christ speaks, and the demon cannot but submit, and does exactly what Christ commands. This isn't a fair fight. There's a power and authority in Jesus that even the demonic powers tremble before him. Why? They owe their existence to him. He sustains their very existence. This is the supreme authority of Christ on full display. And Christians, it's precisely because of this authority that as humans, we can have hope. This man was under the spell and tyranny of Satan and with mere words... Jesus delivered this man from slavery and granted him life. This is why Jesus has come. He's come to conquer his enemy, Satan, and to deliver all those who have been bound and enslaved by him to free us from his tyranny. And of course, we know that as the narrative unfolds, the apex of his conquering and deliverance will be his own death, where he will put to death our own very sin, and now Satan will have no power over us. This is the supreme authority of Christ. And just as they were astonished by his authority in his teaching, now they're also astonished Astonished by his authority over the demonic realm. As we read in verse 27 and 28. And they, that is the people, were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The people have been confronted with an authority and power that they've never seen or experienced before. What is this? Who is this that is walking among us mere mortals? Even the demons submit to him with very little resistance. He is the one who has supreme authority. And if he has supreme authority over the demonic, then know that he also has supreme authority over your life and over my life. Just as this demon's resistance was futile, so our resistance to Jesus is futile. Christ has been given an authority, the scriptures tell us, to judge and to forgive all humanity. And if you willingly come to him, you will experience his authority to forgive. And you will know his deliverance from sin and death and even the tyranny of Satan. Don't be irrational like the demons. You cannot thwart Christ's purposes and plans any more than a house cat can defy a lion. You will surrender 
And the choice is yours whether you surrender willingly or whether you surrender because the power and authority of Christ has prevailed against you. Will you come to the door of Jesus? So we've seen our, we've seen our helpless humanity. We've seen that there's a demonic reality and that Christ has a supreme Authority, And there's one last thing I want to draw our attention to in this passage, and that is Christ and his secrecy. Christ and his secrecy. When the demon acknowledges who Jesus is, Christ commands him to be silent, to be muzzled. He will not allow the demons to declare his identity. You see this also in verse 34 as well. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. Because they knew him. At this point in the narrative, we know that it's only the spiritual realm that's fully aware of the identity of Jesus. God the Father declared him to be his beloved son at his baptism, and now the demon declares him to be the Holy One of God. Yet Jesus, when the demons speak of him, he is adamant in keeping his identity secret. And we see this not only with the demons, but also with other people who he heals later on in the narrative. This, this motif, this motif is, is carried out throughout the whole narrative. Jesus is not wanting people, he is not wanting others to speak and to declare who he is. Why? What's Jesus' purpose in hiding his identity? Does he not want people to know him? Well, the answer is yes and no. I think Jesus wants to reveal who he is in his own terms, and in the right time. If the demons or others reveal his identity, his identity may be distorted. Not only that, they might think that they represent him. If the people, the Jewish people, realize who he is, in their sinfulness, they will want to crown him king and start a rebellion against Rome. When Jesus knows what lays before his coronation is the cross. And this is precisely why he commands the disciples to tell no one that he's the Messiah. So he wants people to know who he is, but he wants them to know who he is rightly. That is, he wants them to know who he is by faith, not by mere intellectual knowledge like the demons. The demons know who he is, and it affects no change in them. They are still full of hatred toward him. But Jesus will reveal who he is in such a way that those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will believe. And those who don't will harden their hearts against him. What about you this morning, friend? How will you respond to Jesus? Every single one of us gives our allegiance to some kind of authority and power, whether we realize it or not. We can't help it. It's partly what it means to be human. 
There are, are many, for example, who give their allegiance and, and, and their devotion to political power and authority. There are many who, who give their allegiance, their devotion to the power and rule of sexuality. It has become their God. There are many who swear their allegiance and their devotion to the power and rule of money. Yet all these things, in one sense, are merely Satan's tactics of showing and revealing his tyranny on the world. And all these things will fail. None of these things can truly deliver us from our helplessness and sinfulness. We live in a society today that really believes that our political authorities can actually change our world. It's utter foolishness. There's only one authority and power in the universe that can truly deliver us from our misery. And that is the power and authority of Jesus Christ. His authority and power alone reign supreme. So the question is, how will you respond to Jesus? What are you looking, what are you looking to deliver you from the miseries of this life? And if you're a Christian here this morning, take comfort knowing this. Jesus has defeated and will defeat the powers of darkness. And the one who controls the demonic powers with his very own voice is the one who we are told is on our side. You cannot go wrong in trusting in him and following him. Let's pray. Father, we simply come before you now, acknowledging the authority and power of our Lord Jesus. Help us to tremble before such power and authority, but also to worship him for such power and authority and to rest secure knowing that his power and authority is on our side. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.